listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. My guest this week is self-published author Ruth Sutton. Ruth has written and published the Between the Mountains and the Sea trilogy of historical novels. Most recently, she published her first crime thriller, Cruel Tide, which was released at the end of 2015. Ruth wrote her first novel after she was 60 and gave up on trying to find a publisher for her work, opting instead to go in alone and publish her books to a commercial standard. Welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, Ruth. Thank you, Paul. Nice to speak to you. Um, What inspired you to write your first novel? Oh, I think it was on the bucket list for quite a while. I've been travelling for the last 25 years with my work all around the world. And when it came to the sort of 60 milestone the bucket list had one item on it which was to publish um, my first fiction I'd been writing non-fiction for quite a while previously with work again but fiction was definitely something I wanted to do are you one of these people Ruth who'd written throughout your life uh, fiction I'm talking about no no I hadn't I um, I wrote obviously when I was at school and, and felt that I enjoyed it but then got sucked into the education world and wrote almost all my writing after that was on education, uh, a lot of it. So, and it was all work related. And when you're self-employed, you need to keep your output going to keep yourself marketable. So it, it, that soaked up all my writing ambitions until, as I say, until I got to the stage of thinking I've got to write this novel. So you had had a bit of a warm up then before you set pen to paper, although it wasn't in fiction. Oh, yes. And I'd warmed up in self-publishing as well, because some of the non-fiction, some of the education work I published, I wrote um, in the last 20 years, I actually self-published at a very amateur level. But I knew roughly what the process was about. Had you tried to get traditionally published prior to that? Um, with the education stuff, I had been commercially published, yes, both here and in Canada. But um, the fiction stuff was a completely different kettle of fish. I was out of my depth in terms of knowing how to set about finding a commercial publisher for the fiction. And as you said earlier, I tried for a while and then gave up. How had you found the traditional publishing experience the first time around then? Ah, well, that was one of the reasons for wanting, in the end, to self-publish. I found it frustrating. Uh, I regard the book as a kind of project, any book as a kind of project. And to have the project removed from you when it's just a manuscript and be told what kind of cover you're going to have and what kind of format and how the book's going to be published and publicised, I found that frustrating. I've been self-employed for so long, I was used to making my own decisions. <laughs> so you lost control of it then when you handed the manuscript over yes. was there anything you could do um well you were given a kind of choice of covers and and you were dis- things were discussed with you but ultimately it i felt as if the manuscript once handed over had gone uh, it was like a, a, having a baby adopted you know it was in somebody else's care now and it was I found that disconcerting. I didn't enjoy that experience much at all. And the process of being edited sometimes I found 
um, depressing as well by somebody I didn't know and I hadn't any control over. So, again, I think it's just this urge for control that's maybe a little bit excessive in my case. I'm interested to hear what you said about editing because it's, mm. quite, a, it's quite an intrusive experience, actually, isn't it? It can be. Uh, I chose my editor finally for the fiction project with care, and she's a woman I know and have known for many years and respect. So that I think I needed some kind of relationship with the editor before I was prepared to say, to, to kind of tussle with them about uh, storylines or um, expression or paragraphing or whatever it was going to be. I needed to know and respect the person's capacity. Um, and I wasn't entirely certain in one or two of the cases when I was commercially published that, that the editor I was dealing with um, I, I did respect. I, it was difficult at times. How much did it help you when you set out on your journey writing fiction to, to know that you'd, you'd produced a book before? You knew you could at least get from A to Z with writing a book. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't find a publisher, ultimately. I, well, in the beginning, I just wanted to write the book. And then you realise quite quickly you want people to read it. And then there's the question of how you get it to that stage of getting it into people's hands. But it, for a while, I thought, oh, no, I'll find a publisher. And um, and I went down the traditional road that we all go down, which is knowing that you have to find an agent first. So I sent off all my, you know, bits and pieces to agents, the synopses in the five chapters or the 5,000 words or whatever it was, got increasingly fed up with the tedium of preparing all this stuff for agents. All the agents needed different things in different formats. And after a while, when the the... I know it happens every time and I should have been prepared for it, but the, the kind of thud of rejection on the, on the doormat um, when it says a yet another letter, which you don't feel reflects any uh, understanding of what you've just given them. It's a kind of standard letter. Thanks, but no thanks. And I just in the end thought, oh, I can't be bothered with any more of this. I got impatient. Patience is not one of my virtues. <laughs> had you had to go through a rejection process when you were doing the non-fiction books? No, none at all. Um, my all, I was always commissioned to write if I was com- being commercially published in the education side. People asked me to write. So the, there wasn't any question of just writing and sending it off. It was always a case of being um, requested by a publisher to write something so that the process was completely different. With your fiction, how did you go about finding the right agents to send the book to? Well, I did the usual again with the Writers and Artists Yearbook and you got, you buy it and you go through all the agents pages and you look for agents who are publishing stuff or involved with books much in the same genre as yourself. And you look at um, what who else they've published. You do your homework. Uh, you boil it down to a long list and then possibly a short list, although I think I approached about 10 in the end. But it wasn't just a, a pin and a piece of paper. I did it fairly carefully and was very struck, for example, by the fact that almost, I think almost all the agents, if not all of them, were in London. And I, mm-hmm. as, as a good, solid northerner, I was, my, my uh, suspicions were raised about this. And I just thought in the end, when I began to analyse, why was it that I was getting one rejection after another? Um, one of the reasons could be, I felt, that I was too old that they weren't really interested in a writer who was towards the end of a writing career rather than the beginning of one. I was too northern, and what I was writing, I think, in genre terms, I think would could be labelled as regional women's fiction, historical women's fiction, and that's like four nails in the coffin, really. 
of, of what the agents in London would be interested in. And in the end, I came to the conclusion, firstly, that my face didn't fit in terms of my profile for an agent, would interest an agent. And secondly, to be very frank and honest, the stuff I was submitting at that stage, that's five years ago, just simply wasn't good enough. And looking at it now, I'm almost embarrassed that I sent this stuff off thinking that this would be, you know, the bee's knees when, when I'm writing much better now than I was then. But then that's the reason I've called this podcast Self-Publishing Journeys, Ruth, mm. because if you don't look back at your first work and see an improvement, then you're not getting better, are you? Oh, I've got much better. Um, the, the first book took me four years to write uh, because the first attempt was pretty dire. And that was in, it was in those first attempts that I started find, trying to find an agent. And it was only when I'd lost patience with the agent route, lost patience with that route and began to think about self-publishing that three or four years into the project, I got my act together, got a decent editor and decided to um, have a go. Um, but the, it, it, is, it is a journey. You, you, however much you've written previously, writing fiction, writing long form fiction is a very new experience. And it took me quite a while to get my head around it. I'm interested to probe that word that you use, dire. When you say dire, you're clearly an articulate lady and you've clearly written before. So what, what made the writing dire then? What oh, was structure. wrong with it? Structure. I know I can put a sentence together. Um, I have never had any trouble with that. But it was the structure. I, let, I, I didn't plan well enough. I had far too many minor characters, subplots, complexities. Things didn't tie up. The thing didn't flow. Um, it was the, it's always been structure. That's been the, the thing I've had to really focus on. Not, not the micro writing, if you like, the macro writing has been the, the, the challenge for me. And I've learned a great deal about that over the last five years. I think to a ex certain extent though, you've got to travel that journey once to, to know how to do it better the next time. Do, would you agree with that? Yes, I would. You can go on any, I mean, I've been on courses. I've been on more courses and I've had hot dinners and you learn bits and pieces from each experience learning experience that you have but ultimately at the end of the day you've got to do it and then look at it and get some good feedback and this was again what what matters about getting a good a, a, um, editor whose whose opinion you trust that you need the feedback and you need to have another go and it's very tempting just to give up uh, and when you've got something sprawling all over the place and you can't control it but if you just keep at it and keep correcting and keep asking for feedback and, and thinking about it and acting on it, if you trust it, then you will, it will get better. And it did get better. How do you write, Ruth? Are you pen and paper or computer? Oh, computer. Yeah. Every time. It's a lot easier to cut and paste and move things oh, around, yeah, I absolutely, guess. Absolutely, yeah. I've tried when I was first writing nonfiction 20 years ago. I did it longhand. Got a, got a repetitive strain injury in my hand from doing so. Um, and I've been on working with a computer now since then for 20 years. And it wouldn't I wouldn't ever go back to longhand. As you say, cut and pasting is much more satisfactory as long as you can keep track of your various drafts. That's what foxed me at the beginning. But I'm much more disciplined now about filing things, uh, labeling them correctly, being able to refine them so that I don't end up trying to work on a draft that I rejected two weeks before. And which was, again, one of the difficulties I had to begin with. And what do you use to write in? Are you a Microsoft Word user? Yes. Yes, I and write. And you get on okay with that, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yes, fine, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've heard about and looked at some of these writing tools like Scrivener and things, but I really, I really don't like the idea of the formulaic 
process that you might get into. I, I, it might help me, but I'm too old fashioned for it, I think. I'm a Scrivener user. That's oh. why I was asking you about Microsoft, because yeah. I wrote my first book on Google Drive and then brought it to Microsoft. And uh, I'm interested to hear what you said about the versions, because the versions are, are a devil of a job to keep up with. You've got to be organized, haven't yes, you? Yes, you have. You have. Yeah. And so I moved to Scrivener because I heard a lot of writers saying, and I love it. I'd never go back now, actually. And it's also good for formatting for Kindle and for Create Space or, you know, however you format your books. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. But so I'm, I'm interested to hear that you use Microsoft and, and get on well with it. I, I, I mean, obviously, I've learned how to do it and I've never tried anything else. Maybe I should. Um, but... At the moment, I'm, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. At the moment, I'm quite happy to stay with Word. And are you a, a plotter or a pantser when you come to Oh, a plotter. Books? A plotter. I was a pantser, if that's the right expression. I tried to do the first one without really understanding how to do plotting. Uh, and it was a disaster. The whole process was a disaster. I mean, got it out in the end. Um, but it, as I say, it took me four years. Since then, I've been much more careful about plotting and have realized what it what i need to do to make it work and since then since that first one i've been doing a book a year without too much difficulty as long as i'm planning well ahead and i'm spending as much time on in fact more time on research and planning than i do on the actual writing well let's talk about the research because mm. i know yours are historical novels and i also mm. know that the stories are set in the cumbrian landscape so it's quite important when it's factual that you get that sort of stuff right isn't it it is yeah i started with the first one i thought i needed to the research first it's that academic in me i suppose that says do your research first and then decide what you're going to write about but actually uh, maybe this was congruent with the business of learning how to plot what i do now is think about setting of course but then i live here so that's not so much of a difficulty setting is critical but then i think about character and plot development and I think the word that I probably used about the research is I retrofit it. I, I realize as I'm writing what I need to know more about, what needs to be authentic and accurate, and then go and find the information. Except that before I even start to plot, what I often do, depending on what year I'm interested in, I'll go off to Whitehaven Local History Library and I'll sit there with the Whitehaven News. And I'll go through the whole of the Whitehaven news for a given year or two on those awful microfiche machines that they make you use. Nearly drive myself demented. But what I'm looking for is a sense of the, of the place and the time. And you get it from adverts and you get it from leader columns and you get it from articles about all sorts of obscure things. You get jokes, you get court cases. It's, it's a really interesting way of immersing yourself in a time and place. Um, but Whitehaven News, Barrow News I used as well for a while. But it just it's something there's something first hand about that research that's that's very engaging. And I usually come away with some little nugget that is so uh, central to a sense of the time and place that even just a little tiny piece of information will ground the reader in in the time and place that you're looking for. It sounds to me, Ruth, as if the research is as much of a hobby and an interest for you, because oh, it sounds like you get really immersed in it. I do. I love it. I mean, I'm a historian by um, training, I suppose, from way back. Um, so I've never been phased by the need for, to find information. 
And I'm fascinated by the pursuit of what I call first-hand primary documentation. Um, as I've mentioned, the newspapers, uh, reports of things. I, I found for the second book, which was set around a pit disaster in Whitehaven in 1947, I found in the Durham Miners archive the actual report by the NCB on, a, on the catastrophic accident that happened in a Whitehaven pit in August of 47. And that was verbatim. That was a transcript of the witness statements and what was the information that was offered. That kind of information is like gold dust to me. And just the pursuit of it and finding it and being so fascinated by it is part of the pleasure before I ever get to do the writing. Uh, we'll talk about the books now because your first three books were or are a trilogy. Did yeah. you conceive them as a trilogy? No, I I did the first one, but it was, a, as I've said many times, it was a rather laborious and difficult process. And it was only really when I got towards the end of the first one, I, th I thought that I've spent so long on this and spent so long with these characters that I didn't want to leave them behind. So I, I conceived the idea of moving the characters forward and and thought about how long, how far forward. And 10 years seemed to be interesting. I'd started, and I won't bore you with the reasons why I started the work in 1937. So I just moved everything forward to 1947 and thought what an interesting year that was anyway, with the weather, with the post-war gloom, with rationing, uh, with the coal uh, shortages uh, and the cold especially in this area, it was a very interesting uh, year, 1947. So I thought, OK, let's just move these characters on and see where they might be ending up in 1947, what kind of lives they'd be leading and how would they be relating to each other and to new characters. And having done that, I then decided that if I was going to move it on another 10 years to 1957, that that was just a gift because the big event in 1957 in this area on this coast was the Windscale Fire of October 1957, which hasn't been in the public arena for very long because of the, um, the, uh, the secrecy of the information for 50 years. So it was relatively recent, of huge significance on this coast, never been written about in the fictional form at all, and I just couldn't resist it. So that gave me the, the three books. Do you fall in love with your characters when you write them, Ruth? Oh, I think so. Don't don't we? I th I definitely do. Uh, I, I agree. I do. I'm not sure I fall in love with them. In, in I'm I'm passionately interested in them, even if they're yes. a pain. Um, but I find them intriguing. I find them. I talk about them as I'm doing now, as if they're real people, and they become real to me. Yes, no question about that. It was a fascinating thing to me that you suddenly, they do come alive. People say that they come alive, but they, yes. you, you know what they would do and think. Yes. And that's quite an amazing experience when it happens, isn't it? It is. It is. And you realise how important they are and how much they represent. And not in terms of the reality of your own life, but they, for some reason, the way those people think and who they are and how they live their life becomes important to you. How did you find writing in the trilogy format? I've written two trilogies now, and it, it, it feels like a really natural rhythm to me to tell a story, and I just wonder how you found it. Um, the difficulty, yes, I do. I do like the, the notion of an extended story over a period of time. The difficulty is that you know, or you must know, that some readers will come to the trilogy without starting at the beginning. So the, uh, the treatment of backstory 
and the treat the the potential to read each of the books in the trilogy as a freestanding on its own that is the hard part so at the beginning of book two you you're writing both for somebody who's reading book two for the first time coming at it without having read book one but you're also writing for somebody who's coming at it who has read book one so you have to keep both sets of readers engaged and their needs are quite different and that that for a series i think is one of the challenges that that you struggle with i think it gets easier when you think it through but it's not easy to start with i want to dig a little deeper into how you actually got the first book self-published or how you actually went about publishing it so we know that you've written it in a word document so we've got the story and and most people that just sits on the hard drive for years and it never gets beyond that so how did you move it beyond the hard drive well i decided that i would become my own publisher if you like but i also decided i wanted to publish to commercial standard this was a bit of a legacy project in a way and i had friends in london who are already small publishers they operate mostly in the fictional field sorry the non-fiction field but i've known them for 20 years she's the um, editor he's the designer of books i i know them i respect them i've worked you know seen how they they work and i approached them and asked if they would help me with this project and it was a bit of a mates rates thing i think to start with but they they're commercial people they wanted to make sure that they didn't lose and I wanted to make sure that I paid them a decent rate. But I'm a little bit different than some self-publishers, I think, in that I pay people to do these jobs for me rather than do them myself. And the criterion is that what they end up with or what we end up with has to be as good as anything that a commercial publisher could produce. So when it left you, mm. it went to an editor, presumably, first yes. of all? First, and a proofreader, first to the editor. That- yeah, first to the editor and to and fro for quite a long time. Um, well, the first book is not typical, really, because that was a, a, a most peculiar process. But the, ever since then, it's gone to and fro, both during the process of writing. I usually submit, uh, I talk to my editor about the synopsis, what the, the varied plot lines are, the shape of it. Then we get to the point of writing a kind of outline, and she thinks about the authenticity of it, the credibility of it. We talk a lot about the, the kind of shape. Um, and then I start with a first draft, which I'm in the middle of book five at the moment, starting a first draft. And she will get that first draft and comment, uh, suggest, uh, point out things that don't add up, that are um, chronologically uh, don't work. And it'll come back to me. I'll work on it. I'll send her another draft. That will go to and fro three or four times, I should think, before we ever get to the point of saying, OK, let's start looking for the 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 typing errors and the um spelling errors and stuff like that and not of course that there would be any spelling errors but but before we get to analyzing kind of the proofreading stage it's gone to and fro between me and the editor quite a lot and it's only when we get to the proofreading stage and beyond not proofreading but draft reading correcting the draft that john the book designer then gets involved and we will talk, or we did at the beginning, about formats, about size, about paper quality and weight, about um, font, about chapter headings, about any illustration that I might need, about the design of the front and back matter, as he calls it, the front and back of the covers. So he, John will then get involved at the second stage, if you like, 
and then he commissions a cover editor a cover designer which he i'm very pleased with um with the cover designer that we've worked with on all four of the books so far and so it goes it just it works as a continuing project between me the editor and the book designer and those two happen to work together and and live together too they're a married couple so at what stage do you get to hold a book in your hand and then do you get to approve it at that stage well it, it, the proofs come back to me of course uh, before they go to the printers uh, before on the last stage before everything goes to the printer that will have been the the work will have been proofread in its final format in page paged up and all everything in it proofread oh heaven knows how many times i mean it's a tedious process and there's always you always find one um inverted comma in the wrong place or one comma without a space or whatever you always find something that's not right but proofreading is intense and will be done both by me and by the editor and by john the book designer then it goes off to the printers and maybe three weeks after that i'll get back from the printers the first copies of the the actual book that's the paperback of course and usually john and i are working on the ebook um, before i get the paperback um uh, return from the printers so the ebook would be ready to go uh, and i'll upload that onto kindle not long after the public paperback has been finished oh so you do that bit yourself the up the uploading bits and the uh, john Amazon formats page. It for me john goes through um makes sure that the um document is works well uh, there's a thing called widows and orphans i'm sure you know about widows and orphans it's <laughs> about do. yes it's about making sure that the pages look good uh, and that the um, the text works within the page ref- page frame that you've got, that if you've got any illustrations or chapter headings that need to be specially done, he makes sure that those are going to come out well. And when he's got the Moby file, he'll then send it back to me, and I will get the Moby file uploaded onto Kindle. Have you ever considered hardback, or have you just missed that completely? Oh, missed out hardbacks completely, yes. It, I mean, it, the hardback doesn't seem to be, for the kind of fiction I'm working on, um, an option to be honest with you it's mine is commercial fiction not literary not you know not classics it's it's designed to be bought by people without a vast expense and read and it i'd never even considered the hardback do you have to get involved in the isbn process or is that taken care no no i do all that you? i do all that oh so you've, you've gone through the nielsen experience have you oh yes yes i mean i did that when i was publishing my own non-fiction you see so that piece of the process was well known to me. I knew how to do that. So you've got your Excel spreadsheet of, of ISBN numbers, yes. which amazed me when I did it the first time. I thought it would be some automated process by now, but it's still very manual, isn't it? Um, is it still? Uh, I, I got an email back with an Excel time. spreadsheet. Mm, you get, I was quite yes, surprised. You do, you do, actually. You're right. I, you just buy a set of 10 numbers and work your way through them. Um, and then I just recently had to buy a set of another set of 10 um, and work. I'm working my way through that one now. It's it just doesn't it, I don't even think about it. It's just something you just do. Mm, it was an interesting experience for me because I'd never done it before. So I was surprised at that. I, I thought they'd have some online automated system by now. But um, no, it's no. the old fashioned way. Mm. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So how many books then do you get printed or can you do print on demand or do you get a job lot done? I get a job lot done. I looked at POD but rejected it. Um, it's expensive. Um, I'm sure if I really worked on the fine-tuning of the accounts, I might decide that paying for storage, which I have to do uh, because I get a big bulk order, 
paying for storage offsets the the cost of um, the extra cost of print on demand. But I actually thought, no, let's go the let's go the old route. Let's just print fifteen hundred. I put printed fifteen hundred of the first three. Printed a thousand of the fourth. Um, I was a little concerned about storage, so I just decided to print a thousand, which is slightly more expensive unit cost, but not not very much in it. Um, and use the storage locker to keep them all in you can't keep books in a damp garage and you can't keep them in the loft where there might be a mouse so you have to be very careful because this is you know the it, you've invested a lot of money in these books so you have to look after them well um i'm not sure that it, it's commercially viable to to do what i'm doing but I, as long as i get back what i spend i'm not particularly interested in making a profit i just would like to cover my costs one of the things that I found with trying to get books into bookshops was that there's an expectation that there'll be discounts. And I think they even expect sometimes to be able to, to have them on sale or return. Yep. Have you had to experience any of that? Oh, yes, I'm quite used to that. Yes, I have no trouble with that at all. We, we When I was first approaching shops, it was always on the sale or return basis because they have limited storage and they don't know whether the things are either going to be left with stuff. And that's fine. I don't mind that. Most of the shops I approach are local anyway because... Um, I haven't got the wherewithal to start schlepping around all over the country with stuff and, you know, in a box. So I, local shops have been very um, good because it's local fiction and they, the, the, the locals love it and the tourists love it. So that, and that was one of, part of my thinking when I decided on the setting was that there was a niche here for fiction set in the West Lakes because there isn't any. And the West Lakes has an extraordinary number of visitors every year. So I thought, well, let's try it and see if it works. The other place that I went was a, um, a distributors in Workington um, who cover all the West, North and South Lakes uh, bookshops and book outlets, tourist offices and all sorts of things, cafes and things. So I approached them with this book again on sale or return. Their discount was 50 percent. The normal bookshop rate is 30 percent. But that's fine. I, I knew about that from working with my own books previously. So I wasn't I wasn't too surprised or um, phased by the de- having to deal with bookshops in that way. How does that work then? Do you give them a, a pile of books? Who? The distributor. Yes. I'm interested to know how yes, this yes. works. They, I don't know they, anything about this. They say, this. We, uh, can we have X boxes of, you know, how many boxes of this, that or the other? And I actually now they come and pick them up from the house. They're, we've had various arrangements of me getting the books to them. But they, they buy by the box. Um, so they may have, you know, two boxes at 25 each. They, they just tell me what they want. I take up the order. They pay well. They pay on time. And they cover everything else. They they um, promote the books to their bookshops. They uh, distribute them, obviously, carry them around. It would be impossible for me to get to all the places that they cover. I think you've done an extraordinary job Ruth of marketing yourself locally and I just want to explore that a little bit because I first encountered you through a library talk within the the county of Cumbria and I noticed uh, from your blog for instance that you're all over the place doing these talks yes. can I just explore a little how you've managed to do that because authors listening to this this is all gold dust information well I honestly don't know I mean I, I've been doing talks and workshops and things for decades so, and I'm a teaching background, so that the notion of talking to people 
is I love it. I absolutely love it. I do. I am aware of that. Some writers find that very difficult. I see people having to go on seminars to know how to talk to people. And I think, wow, you know, thank God I don't have to do that because this is this is just part of my life. Talking about stuff and teaching, teaching in a way, helping people to understand what you've been doing or a process that you've been going through. That's that's not difficult for me. I love it. So I, I don't know. Where did I start doing this? I, I, I approached the libraries, the like Cumbria libraries have been very good saying um, I'd like to I'm reading I'm writing these books. I'm publishing these books. Um, have a look at them. And I'd love to talk to readers groups or library groups or whatever. And they and you don't charge. So, you know, free service. They, they can't turn you down, really. Then then I got into the WI, the Women's Institute circuit, which is quite lively, actually. I mean, it, it, people will scoff, I've no doubt. But there you can sell. I can sell a hundred pounds worth of books in the night at a Women's Institute because they really do like to buy from somebody who's written the thing. And you sign it for them and you've talked about it. So there's a whole that Women's Institute network and the library network. And then you get into things like Borderlines uh, Festival at Carlisle and the Keswick Festival, which I'm going to next week, because you get it's all word of mouth. But people begin to understand that you, a person who's written a book can actually talk about what they did and how they did it and the places where the books are set and the research that they've done. And that talk can be engaging or interesting and they'll read a bit from their books and then they'll sell you a book if you want one and they'll sign it for you. And, and it's, it's fun. It, it's, I love it. And, and I suppose, I think, well, I don't know, but I, I guess that my interest in, in promoting books through just talking about them in various places, I, this is relatively unusual, but it, I never thought it would be any other way. The other thing is that you've got three local radio interviews on your blog as well. Mm -hmm. And that's quite a, a feat and an achievement to get that local radio coverage. How did you manage to pull that one off? Well, I don't I think they're gasping for people to go and do stuff, actually. Um, I mean, think they, I mean, Caroline Robertson on an afternoon in Gerrit Cumbria, five days a week. She's got to find stuff to talk about. So and it needs to be, I mean, necessarily local stuff. So it. I just wrote to her or emailed or find out who she was or I can't remember how I found her in the first place as a starter and said, here I am. I'd like to do something and uh, talk about these books. And she wrote back and said, I can't remember what it was. Go to Barrow and you know, in the studio and we'll put you on for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it was. This was years ago. And I did my bit. And then the next time I got another book out, I wrote to her again and said, I've got another book out. Can I? Oh, yes, do come on the program and i decided in the end that i would go to her in the studio rather than sit at the end of the line in barrow i would go and and talk through you know face to face with the person who was interviewing me about it and we had a good time i enjoyed the talking she enjoyed she enjoyed the books and said so um then the the last one was with paul braithwaite who was standing in for caroline i think and he was very uh, welcoming and we had a great talk, actually. I really enjoyed that one. He'd done his homework. And I don't know. I mean, I, my impression has always been a bit with like, like the local media, that if you present yourself, sound halfway intelligible, and if you do a press release for them or a, a summary of what you want to talk about, then they lap it up. Well, I think you're doing an excellent job of it because you, you've certainly got a very 
good presence within the county. And um, I, I think that's brilliant. I've never seen a, a local author as, as proactive as you are, but that seems to be the secret, proactivity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about it. You've written a book. Nobody knows it's there. Even if you've got a website and, and, a, and a Twitter account and you've on Facebook and whatever, who's going to know you exist? Who's going to know this stuff? You've got to get out there and do something about it. And the local, I think the local papers are very good, actually. If, you, if you're doing a talk somewhere or you write them a press release and you, they say, well, are you going to be doing this, you know, talking about it anywhere? And they'll, they'll turn up. They'll turn up with a photographer. They'll do a feature. They, the Northwest Evening Mail has been, I've been in there countless times, Whitehaven News the same. And even with a WI meeting, that the, um, the WI will send in a press report to the Whitehaven News. And there you are, like I was a couple of weeks ago in the Whitehaven News again, with a photo and and a little chat about what I'd done. And it's it, I, I can't imagine that you think you could do less than that, because otherwise nobody will know. It's not that they know and reject your book. They just don't know about it. The World Wide Web plays a big part in any author's portfolio these days. And you are listed on Amazon. How's, how does that work for you? Are you guessing going well with it? Amazon, um, Amazon paperbacks, I, they don't fulfill that. You can have fulfilled by Amazon. I'm sure you'll read it. Your listeners will know all about this. You can send Amazon the stock and they will fulfill your order for you, but you pay them an extraordinary amount of money to do so. Otherwise, they just act as a kind of brokerage. So people will, will apply to Amazon and Amazon contact us, me, and we fulfill that order by sending the book back. The number of Amazon orders is relatively few, actually. Um, my overseas readers uh, use it sometimes because it's more convenient than than trying to get to me um, direct in England. But we don't sell a lot of books, paperback books on Amazon, but we do sell an awful lot on Kindle. And I've, I'm, I'm mystified as to how that happens. I mean, an awful lot, relatively. I'll say, a book, you know, 30, 40 books a month on Kindle, e-books a month on Kindle. And I, I, because you don't know where those orders are coming from, you simply don't know who's buying your books. When the Amazon orders come in or the website orders come in, you've got an address and you can see how far are you stretching, in my case, beyond the county where I'm most known, beyond Cumbria. Where are these readers coming from? But with Kindles, you've no idea. So the paperback, the Amazon paperback has been a, slow it's there because it, as you say it makes a good place for people to look up and and that look inside feature that amazon have so they can read the first few pages and you've got an author page and all that stuff but it doesn't generate a great deal of business how do you get on with the web i notice you've got your own author blog so you and you're on twitter you're active on social mm -hmm. media as well how important do you think that is as part of your author communication tools um you do it because you have to, really. Uh, I'm on Twitter because that was a, a requirement, I, I reckoned, of any author interested in building a, a, a base. I've got 700-and-something followers now, not very much, far, far fewer than yourself. Um, but my, my base mainly is very, it's a very old-fashioned base. It's word of mouth. It's relatively local, and it spreads out from the local. It's gone, I'm all over Cumbria now, and Lancashire Life did a review in February, which was good, because I, I don't quite know how that happened. I think I wrote to them and said, how about it? And they said, okay. So Lancashire Life is spreads down, right, as you know, right down to Manchester. So 
my challenge is not so much worldwide web stuff. It appears to be the North of England word of, word of mouth network. And, and that sounds terribly 19th century. But my readership, a lot of my readership is a generation that isn't comfortable with social media and with the web. So because th- th- that generation of women, particularly women, are interested in the stories that I tell. So it would be folly on my part, I think, to assume that every every potential reader was on the web and on Facebook, because frankly, they're not. Now, let's move to your latest book. And I'm talking about the one that's published rather than yeah. one that's in progress. Um, Cruel Time. I love the cover for that, by the way. It's I think it's great, a really striking it? cover. Yeah, it is yes. good. Did, did you use a different designer on that? Because nope. it, it looks to me like something I would see on a shelf in Waterstones. It's a lovely cover. It is a great cover. Now, that's Kevin Ancient again, the same guy who's designed all the others. Um, but in this case, I had a very clear image in my head from the beginning as to what I wanted to see on that cover. And I gave him through John, the book designer, he and I talked to Kevin about what we wanted. I wanted a sense of the space of Morecambe Bay because Morecambe Bay is almost like a character in the story. But I also had this very powerful image in chapter one of the book. And I wanted it on the cover of a child's hand coming out of a quicksand because that's how the body in chapter one is discovered uh, with these little fingers sticking out of the sand. And I, and I found that such a powerful image. I wanted to see it on the cover and the challenge for Kevin was to do it because it had to be a child's hand. And that was, that was the tricky part. He could get me an adult hand coming out of the sand. (laughs) And I said, no, Kevin, it has to be a child. (laughs) So he, he dug, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. I was absolutely amazed when he came back with that because that was exactly what I was looking for. And it went through a few iterations about the colors, you know, the, the, the shades of the bay and, and a few bits and pieces about the size of the lettering and stuff. But no, that was pretty well the how I envisaged it, the way it came out. What made you switch to crime? Um, uh, a feeling that I needed to widen the readership, I think. And the local history readership, although quite intense and quite niche, is a little limited. And I, I read a lot of crime fiction and I thought to myself, well, if I read it and I know what I like, maybe I could have a go at that. So part of it was just newness and trying something different. Part of it was commercially, would this have a wider readership? Um, it's a very crowded genre. Um, and I wasn't sure. I'm not sure about the subgenres of crime fiction. Um, but I, I knew the kind of stories I like and the kind of um, authors I like, Anne Cleves, um, uh, Robinson, um, uh, Rebus uh, Rankin to a degree. Um, ooh, I'm trying to think some bits of Ruth Rendell, but not a lot. P.D. James as was, but she's very old fashioned now. So it was like it wasn't the kind of grossly violent psychological thrillers. It was softer, but well written and very with a very strong emphasis on setting that's what i was going for and how did you find the experience compared with the trilogy i well it was an interesting it was different it the emphasis is plotting of course in crime fiction um but plotting without character is meaningless so i had to keep my interest in character and the interest in the setting in the regional setting and then bring in much more careful thought about Q 
cues and clues about structures about reveals about tension uh, again the interest in structure which as i said to you out at the start has been my the thing i've had to learn most about that kind of moved me on into thinking about writing crime fiction and i i enjoyed it and i'm enjoying the second one as well how important do you think the setting is to it? Because um, I'm thinking of things like uh, Girl on the Train and Gone Girl, for instance. They tend to be based in, in big cities, New York's or mm. London's. Mm. Do you think that you could widen your audience if you maybe change the setting? Is that something you'd ever consider? No. Uh, I think setting, like character, has to mean something to you. Um, this is my setting. I couldn't, I couldn't be interested. I, I, wasn't, I wouldn't be interested at all in writing any kind of um, metropolitan setting. I, I know bits of London, but I'm not interested in it. Uh, I've lived and worked in various cities all around the world. Wellington in New Zealand, I might, I might set something there because it's um, a, a sort of second home, or Winnipeg in Canada, another second home. But why should I? You know, it, why write about something for the sake of getting a few more readers when you, there are already huge numbers of writers writing metropolitan um, girl? As long as it's got girl in the title, I think that's what you have to go for. Um, and, and reading those books, I thought, oh, OK, but I, I don't like them very much. I don't like the violence. I don't like the emphasis upon um, rather contrived plotting rather than character. I, they're, they're just not good enough stories for me and setting is obviously critical for me and this is the setting that i love so i'll write about it when you write do you have a word quota that you sit down and write or do you just write as and when what what kind of writer are you oh i don't do word counts well no i don't really i don't do word counts i don't just sit down like graham green did and said 500 white words today and when i finished i'll go and play tennis you know it doesn't work like that um and that I just write, I probably, I try and do a chapter in a day, first draft a chapter, which is what, three to 4,000 words. And it tends to kind of have a shape of its own. And when I finish the chapter, I know I've finished it. And you try and finish a chapter on, a, on an uplift, on a question or a, an ambivalence that makes the reader move on to the next chapter. And at the next day or the next time I sit down to write, I'll go back through the one I wrote the previous day and and second draft that and have a think about it and change things and then move on so you each time you start you're you're moving back into the what piece you've written before to make sure that the thing flows through so it's like review the previous piece of writing and do the next piece in a day and that's when i'm writing when i'm writing it's intense and it's maybe several hours a day uh, and it just keeps going i hardly see anybody or talk to anybody while I'm doing that but you can only do that maybe for four four days a week and then you have to have a break because you find yourself muttering uh, and <laughs> she's not healthy and you have to get some exercise and see people and then you go back and do more the following week and that as I said quite intense for the weeks that it takes to write 30 35 chapters and feel that you've got your first draft sorted and what sort of word count are you aiming for Oh, total? Book. Oh, mm. 90,000 plus? Yeah. Yeah. And that will take you how long? Now Now, now you're a pro at this. Oh, uh, a couple of months? Yeah. Not long. Uh, if, the plan, if the planning is done beforehand, it flows really fast. 
And that's what I learned. I write fast and I enjoy writing fast, but I can only do that if I'm not having to stop and start and rejig and cut and paste and and think about plot lines that aren't going anywhere. So the to get the bonus of getting the plotting right for me is that the writing process itself is fast and fluid. And I, I think that's the way that it works for, for me. I'm, I'm quite prepared to consider that it doesn't work like that for other people, but that's the way it works for me. And you're working on book five now. Yeah. What's this one going to be about? Are you continuing the crime? It's the sequel to The Cruel Tide. Lovely. Uh, Cruel Tide ends quite deliberately with a whole bunch of questions unanswered. Um, and I won't, I'm not going to spoil too many plots by saying that that was inevitable, but I felt it to be inevitable because of the nature of the, the theme of Cruel Tide, which historically was never wrapped up quickly. It, it's an ongoing, it's a, it's a, it, the issue is institutional child abuse and in the sixties and those cases, as we know full well, have taken a very long time to resolve. Mm. So the idea of wrapping it all up with a ribbon at the end was not never going to happen. But the readers, I felt, needed some um, sense of, not closure, that's too um, cliched, but needed a sense of something coming to a conclusion. So I decided to write the sequel uh, and stretch the action over a longer period of time, which, for authenticity's sake, but also to have, have a sense of picking up the threads of a story, adding another story to it, and then the trick in book five is bringing the various threads of the plot together in something which is satisfactory. And that's what I'm working on at the moment. And it's not going to be another trilogy. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. What I'm what I'm aiming to do and well, it may work. It may not is take my two key characters that are going to be in this book for Cruel Tide and this one, which I haven't named yet. Take those key characters, move them forward because I'd really like to get into the late 70s, early 80s, just before the Police and Criminal Evidence Act came in, which changed everything in terms of crime and policing, and set, set some stories locally around the late 70s, early 80s. But that would mean moving my characters on personally to the position, for example, with the police person, where, where that when he becomes more senior and therefore more likely to carry cases on his own rather than just doing as he was told. You're an extremely experienced self-publisher now. So I'm wondering what would your advice be to people who've got the Microsoft Word document stuck on the hard drive and they're wondering what to do next? Find an editor, uh, not just a proofreader, but a story editor and and work with that person on the shape and structure and story to see whether it's good enough to try the agent route. I, I would try the agent route first. For many people, that's the way they need to go. If you try it and realize that it's not going to work for you, then having, had, uh, having worked with an editor, you begin to get to think like a publisher. Uh, you're not just thinking like a writer anymore. You're thinking like a publisher about costs and promotion, marketing and design. And you be and you have to just come to terms with that. You can't just say, oh, I'm a writer. I don't concern myself with such things. If you're going to self-publish, you have to treat it as a project, which has much more to offer than just the actual writing of the words. 
it becomes now a business project. And if you can think in those terms and get some decent help, even if it's only with the editing, and then go down the 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 ebook route rather than the paperback route, I think you just need to keep going, keep keep resilient. The workshop I'm doing at Keswick is an interesting one. I've I've done it before, and it's about defining for yourself to begin with what what is successful self-publishing for you. What are you actually trying to achieve here? And realizing that your notion, your definition of successful is fine. It doesn't have to be the same as everybody else's. But having decided that that's your goal, work backwards from that and think, what do I need to do in order to achieve that goal? And and set yourself, think, think quite hard about this now as a business project and what do you need to do and what will it cost? What are you prepared to afford? Um, where do you want to do the shortcuts and the compromises and where do you want to stick and and think it through in terms of the choices that you make on the, as a self-publisher and and if you if you know where you're headed it's much easier to plan how to get there knowing what you know now about self-publishing would you ever consider traditional publishing again um possibly uh this this route that I've chosen is very time consuming. Um, so if I want to do a book a year, and frankly, if you want to sell, you've got to think about doing a book a year. To do that, both the writing and the publishing as a project is is time consuming. It, there is some temptation to say, if I really just want to write, and and the other is interesting, but I don't want to spend the time on it. And it would be nice just to write and then hand it on to somebody else to, to bring the baby up, if you like. Then traditional publishing might be um, is, is attractive. That's why I say to people, don't discount it completely. You won't make any money particularly either way unless you sell the film rights, which you know is a, is a lot like winning the lottery. Um, so don't expect to make a lot of money either way because self, traditionally published, most writers earn peanuts from royalties. And if... There are pros and cons on either on either route, and I, I would say, it, again, it depends on what you're looking for. What are you good at? What are you interested in? What will you enjoy? And if you'll enjoy self-publishing as a project, then go for it, because it's a lot more creative and interesting than just handing your book over. But if all you want to do is write, then you're not going to get anywhere trying to self-publish. You, you can get the thing out, but you'll never sell it. Ruth, it's been fabulous talking to you today. You've really given me a great uh, insight. And I, I think your your performance locally as a local author is exemplary. I think oh. you really are. The, you're a textbook for, <laughs> for getting the word out locally. It's brilliant. So I think we can learn an awful lot from what you've said today. I really appreciate the time. Where can we find out more about you online? Um, the website is um, ruthsutton.co.uk, or one word, lowercase. Um, my uh, Twitter account is just at Ruth Sutton. I don't bother hiding my identity. Facebook is Ruth Sutton. Uh, the blog is within my website, but it's also published on, it's called ruthwords.wordpress.com. So you can get, in terms of author platform, you can get back to the website by a variety of routes. But the website and the blog, where the books are, where my uh, weekly blog is, that's probably the best way to keep in touch with what I'm up to. And Twitter is good too. I do use Twitter quite a lot. I've really enjoyed speaking to you today, Ruth. Thanks ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. It's been a really enjoyable experience. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.